Hello there. This is the story of the Old Testament. Week 21 for the week of May 21st to the uh, May 27th. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 14 through 22 and Psalms 101 through 105. In the midst of Deuteronomy, as Moses is instructing the people of God in uh, the way of God in the Old Testament, Uh, We begin in chapter 14 this week. You'll notice we are reading about clean and unclean foods, uh, ceremonial laws, the basics. And it's important, right? Because whereas Leviticus, uh, the book of Leviticus is, well, I mean, let's be honest, it's technical. It's um, intentionally technical. um, And it's, it's more of a in, in some ways, right, you think about it, it's, it, it's almost like the kind of a book that a priest would really want to keep around uh, because he would want to know exactly how to do all the sacrifices and ceremonies. Well, here in Deuteronomy, we have talk about the ceremonies and the, like the sabbatical year, the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, clean and unclean food, stuff like that. But here it's kind of for the whole nation um, because in, in one sense, while it was important for people to know the details of what happened at the at the tabernacle it would have been very important especially for the priests to know that what's most important are the details here that Moses gives to the the everyday blue collar israelite so to speak right so he kind of goes through and and talks about the various ceremonial laws um, talks about the feast of booths uh, warns against idolatry again um, talks about the kings the priests the judges all these different things and um, so we can see all these these different aspects of things that are going on uh, intended to kind of give all of the every average day Israelite a quick overview um, and it's kind of like the the basics of what it means to be a part of the nation of Israel that's kind of what Deuteronomy is is all about and so we have a number of things given given to us here um, don't we so the first thing I want to read is from Deuteronomy chapter uh, 18 Deuteronomy chapter 18 we have a thing here where Moses talks about The fact in beginning of verse 15, he says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. This is uh, uh, from Gretchen Ronovic. Gretchen Ronovic is going to be the speaker at our MNBC, our women's conference um, here in September. I believe it's the 22nd and 23rd, maybe something like that. Um, And so this is an article she wrote. Um, It's called Freedom in the Hands of Our Protector. She writes this. The more I study and the older I get, the less I feel I know. There is always someone who knows more, has studied further, and writes more profound words. 
A simple Bible study can start familiar and soon the words start lifting off the page and strike me differently. As I meditate on the words, I will start to research and find whole volumes of books written on the passage that go deeper than I could have imagined. I think I know, but I don't know the half of it. As I raise my children, they go through seasons of arrogance and seasons of humility, as they think they have life all figured out, only to find out they have no idea. They master one skill, thinking it will open up new doors, only to find out the new doors each have more skills to master. My second grader complains about her math at the table, and her older sister doing pre-calculus homework looks at her blank-faced. You don't even know, she says to her little sister. I'm sitting there with the preschooler, having him trace the numbers with his finger. His mind is not yet ready for pre-calculus either. I suppose knowledge has to start somewhere. As we take baby steps in understanding, there are times when we are exposed to the expanse of the road. We see how far we have to go. Instead of seeing our progress, we are humbled by our lack thereof. As God in his mercy enacted his plan to redeem his loved ones, he took them step by step. In the process of redeeming every part of us, he sent us prophets like Moses. What a gift the law of Moses was to the people of Israel. They didn't even know what they had. After 400 years of slavery, a complete institutional and cultural loss of identity, God gave his people the law through Moses. It was part of reorienting them in their definitions of right and wrong as defined by God's word, not their personal daily desires and impulses. If what humans deemed practical and in their interest was always good, they wouldn't need the law to tell them that their hope was found in the Lord and the Lord alone. He was to be their only God. This was lesson number one. God redeemed his people's bodies from slavery in Egypt and now was preparing their minds for freedom. As they stumbled along the path to the promised land, even at their best, they could only accomplish a shadow of the law. It trained them in many things. In their effort for self-fulfillment, they would have to shrink the law down to their size, most often by magnifying the law and studying the little parts. They figured if they could just break it into bite-sized pieces, they could handle them one at a time. The more they studied it, the more they broke it into tinier and tinier pieces until they didn't have the Ten Commandments, but hundreds. But the law could not be broken down. In fact, it was larger and grander than what they could, have e than what they could even fathom. The law itself was much grander than their capacity, and yet the law was a shadow of something even greater to come. The law was a shadow of what Moses saw. What did Moses see? It would be hard to imagine a prophet holier than Moses from the Israelite perspective. Moses actually glowed like a superhero, a side effect of spending 40 days and 40 nights with God on the mountain when he received the law. After his luminous face freaked out the people of Israel, he decided to mask it with a veil but he removed the veil when he went into the presence of the Lord. It had to be stated to the Jews again and again that Jesus has more glory than Moses. Moses served in God's house as a servant. Jesus was the son. How much greater is a son than a servant? When Moses gave the people the law, it did not give them the freedom of the promised land. This silhouette of the redemption was written on tablets of stone, a metaphor for the hearts of the people who heard. Every time the people tried to fulfill the law, they were shown their hard-heartedness. Their pride would rise to the top. God did not give his people the law for them to fulfill. Instead, he gave it because they needed a mirror to expose their need for him on their own faces. When Paul writes the Corinthians, he contrasts the ministry of the law and the ministry of the Spirit. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. 
The glory given through Moses was carved on stone. The glory given through Christ was carved on human hearts, living, beating hearts. This contrast continues in 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Israelites thought the law was all there was to know. They didn't know what they didn't know. They couldn't fathom what lay ahead of them in their journey. How could slaves envision the promised land? How could they understand the imprint of glory on their hearts of stone? They couldn't even handle the glory radiating from Moses' face. They wanted him to veil it. They didn't want the glory. They wanted the stones. They didn't want the person. They wanted the rules. Just tell us the rules. We'll take it from here. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlisted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. 2 Corinthians three fourteen through 15 They were too afraid to step into freedom, cover it with a veil, remove it from sight. They wanted rules and control. They didn't want a shepherd and the freedom of his protection. On our farm, our kids raise chickens. They come delivered to the post office as a cluster of fuzzy chicks in a loud chirping box. We bring them home and put them in the brooder, a wooden box with warm lights and clean water and food. They are locked in to keep them safe from the barn cats and anything else that would prey on them. Chicks hatched by their mom stay with their mom in the freedom of the yard. But when you start a chicken family from scratch, you need a brooder to gradually train them into freedom. They stay there until they become pullets teenage birds. When they outgrow the brooder, they move to the chicken coop, where they get shut in for a few days to orient themselves to their home base. Then we throw open the doors to freedom. Pullets never leave the coop willingly. They must be chased out. The whole yard is full of grass and bugs for them to delight in. There are chicken scraps to scratch through and ash from the fireplace to bathe in. Our yard is a chicken paradise. But it's hard for pullets to understand the freedom of paradise when they've only known for the four walls of the brooder. Part of their move to freedom includes meeting Nanny, their shepherd. Nanny is our great Pyrenees dog. She's a livestock guardian. Nanny will herd the chickens away from the grain bins when the machinery is running. She chases off predators. If she is tied up for a time and a predator sneaks into the yard, the adult chickens will run into the radius of, the, of her lead. They won't run to a box because from experience, they know the greatest safety is to be by a living protector. A caged bird is never the goal. The goal is life with the shepherd. How can we say that the law is safer or greater than the spirit? The brooder, the law, is often used as a place to rest for an injured bird or be kept from the pecking of the other birds until they are healed. The shepherd will use whatever means necessary to protect his flock, even from each other. It's not necessary that the brooder goes unused or has no purpose. It's that its purpose does not exceed the value of the shepherd. It is never above the shepherd. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 2 Corinthians three sixteen through 17 The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not be in want. We can live with him in freedom, knowing our lives are protected in capable hands. And ultimately, that's the greater shepherd that Moses was pointing to, right? Jesus Christ, our Lord, the greater prophet that we are to listen to and to follow. Well, the next thing I want to read to you is from 
Deuteronomy, especially focusing on Deuteronomy chapter 21. And there's this interesting verse in 23, verse 23. Uh, it says this, or also verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This is an article called The Body of God and the Scandal of Our Dying Brother by Bradley Gray. He writes this, One of the most affecting texts in the entire Bible appears in Paul's first Corinthian letter, where the apostle divulges that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. In all, from verse 18 to 25 of that first chapter, Paul alludes to the apparent folly or foolishness of the wisdom of God on four different occasions. This type of vulnerability from a preacher is almost unheard of, but it gets to the heart of what makes the gospel so powerful and so potent. Paul's message, that which the apostles so stubbornly proclaimed, was a message of pure folly in men's ears. His insistence on preaching Christ crucified almost sounded like a joke. Indeed, the church's message, the gospel, is a message of madness and scandal, at least in terms of the world's wisdom. The word stumbling block is in fact one word in Greek, that is, scandalon, meaning offensive or scandalous. As the beloved apostle discloses, preaching the Christ of God crucified on a criminal's cross on behalf of a world chock full of sinners is quite an outrageous venture. And yet, even still, it is precisely that message which demonstrates how the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. What was it, though, that made Paul's message so scandalous? Why would Jews and Greeks find the Christian gospel so offensive? These questions are answered by the writer to the Hebrews, who, in chapter 2 of his epistle, wonderfully explains why and how the Son of God becomes our dying brother. In Hebrews 2, 6-8, the Hebrew writer continues his method of quoting extensively from the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, carried over from the first chapter. He begins by citing the familiar words of Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. What leaves the psalmist spellbound is the fact that God is mindful of him. Despite the infinite vastness and unknowableness of the universe, the creator of it all is attentive to him, so much so that he cares for him. For David, this wasn't mere poetry. He had first-hand experience of the care and concern of God, of God condescending to his place of need and desperation. His days of adversity were only tempered by the sustaining hand of God. The same hands that formed worlds were holding on to him. The Hebrew writer, however, offers a new way to understand this text by making it all about Jesus. In his re-expression of the psalmist's thought, the Hebrew writer makes a distinct connection between the mindfulness of God and the Son of God. After directly quoting from the Psalter, he adds, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Jesus, you see, is the embodiment of God's kindness for and mindfulness of sinful men and women. The Son of God descends to make known the depths of the Father's care and concern for those who are dead in trespasses and sins. To rescue those shackled by the power of death, he makes himself a little lower than the angels, so that by tasting death for everyone, he might put God's grace on display for the whole world. In Jesus, we are made to see the descent of God himself to our world, to our frame, 
God through him shares in the same things that we experience, the writer says. He comes down in flesh and blood as a tangible, afflicted person whose body is susceptible to sorrow and suffering. He is made like his brothers in every respect, in every way, except without sin. Why? So that he might help the offspring of Abraham. The simplest condensation of the gospel is the announcement that God has come down. The creator became incarnate, paranoid, touches on the inherent scandal of Paul's message mentioned earlier. If you were to scour the mythologies of the gods of ancient Greece or Rome, you'd be hard-pressed to find any overt differences between those deities and the rest of humanity. The gods of Olympus often conducted themselves more like vagrants than any sort of venerated deity you'd want your kids to emulate. They were impulsive, acting upon their lust, anger, and vice. Zeus or Jupiter and the rest of their cohort did little to help mankind prosper. And yet, what were the apostles preaching? Their message was entirely encapsulated with the fact not the myth, that Jehovah himself had descended to this world of ruin and woe. And not only that, but that he took on flesh so that he might turn, so that he might run to the aid of hopeless humanity. For the learned scholars of Greece and Rome, all of that sounded more like a, than a little far-fetched. But that's precisely the point. The gospel's message is the scandalous announcement that Yahweh has stooped to our frame, to where we are. That alone is madness enough, but what he does when he gets here serves as the ultimate scandal. The writer's words in the rest of verse 9 and into verse 10 provide us with the necessary details to discern what's involved in that divine scandal. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. According to him, what is it that precipitates Jesus being crowned with glory and honor, namely his suffering of death? What is it that perfects or brings to completion the salvation of all mankind? Their salvation, he maintains, is made perfect through suffering. These, to be sure, are the points that certainly left everyone gobsmacked. That God would descend to earth was, was moderately agreeable to a certain extent, with that story filling some Roman myths. However, proclaiming that God would suffer, willingly, it should be added, was quite another matter entirely. But to say that God not only suffered but actually died, well, that was pure madness. This gets to the heart of why Paul refers to the word of the cross as utter foolishness. Every demographic in his day was understandably offended by that rhetoric. For the Jew, the cross was the ultimate disgrace. The notion of God, therefore, participating in the suffering of death on a cross not only associated him with the severest form of condemnation, it meant he was cursed. For the Roman, the cross was the ultimate defeat. Roman society and culture revolved around the virtues of strength and dominance and power. Dying on a cross, therefore, was the ultimate form of losing. Thus, in their minds, the God of the cross was a God who was a loser. For the Greeks, the cross was the ultimate degradation. Greek idealism and intellectualism was hyper-focused on the perfection of the inner man, which meant that anyone who was subjected to the grotesqueness of the cross was the epitome of imperfection. To them, God was gross. But to each of these skeptics, Paul definitively declares, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Declaring that God's Son willingly suffers for those He loves isn't strange at all. In fact, as the Hebrew writer says, it is entirely fitting, that is proper or appropriate that He would suffer. 
To save those who are shackled by the chains of suffering and death, God in Christ partook of the same things. That is, he shared in our suffering and death. Ours is a God who uniquely who is uniquely familiar with all the sorrows and pains that plague us. The glorious, albeit scandalous, news of the gospel says that God's glory and honor are primarily seen and known in Jesus' willing surrender to the agony and defeat of death. If you want to see who Jesus is, if you want to see what God values, if you want to see what is most indicative of God's character, if you want to see what God thinks of you, take one look at the cross, at Christ on the cross. It is precisely in and through the suffering of death that we are introduced to God our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord. His battered and bruised frame is the divine insignia saying, God loves the world in this way. Or as Paul puts it, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 16 is the nail in the coffin for the writer's argument from chapter 1 that Jesus is superior to angels. For surely it is not angels that he helps, the writer concludes, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. The host of heaven didn't receive this help. Heaven's prince didn't run to their aid. Rather, it is human beings who are uniquely and remarkably the objects of God's love, heaven's love. And in order to make this help effectual, the writer goes a step further and says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. God in Christ shares in the same things we share in, namely flesh and blood and sorrow and death in order to put death to death. This is what astounds the heavenly host. In 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, the apostle Peter alludes to the fact that the angels long to look into the things concerning salvation. That is, they have an earnest desire and interest in the extraordinary fact of grace. The good news stupefies them, sending a surge of heavenly curiosity through them as God's salvation of sinners is freely given through God's own son's suffering. And with that, we are brought back to the staggering question of verse 6. What is man that you are mindful of him? or the Son of Man, that you care for him? Who are we that we should be the recipients of such condescending grace and one-way love? This, you see, is the scandal of heaven. It's not that God is scandalized by the world's hatred and sin and malice, but that he scandalizes the world by his love, stopping at nothing, not even death on a cross, in order to bring those who are lost back home and those who are dead back to life. The Son of God demonstrates the Father's grace by willingly tasting death for everyone, By tasting death is meant that the son shares and experiences all the bitterness and pain and loss of life, which is just to say he really died. Jesus tasted death, R.C.H. Linsky notes, not by merely sipping, but by fully draining the cup. In the ultimate demonstration of humility and love, Jesus freely subjected himself to the defeat of death. As he says in the Gospels, no one is able to take his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. In grace, the son chooses to die. Why? So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The magnificent purpose of Jesus' death is so that by dying, he might abolish death's power and sting along with the one who wields that power, which brings me to perhaps my favorite part of the text. Satan, of course, is the one who has the power of death. He is, as Jesus says, a murderer from the beginning. Ever since the garden, the devil has been deceiving men and women into embracing death. 
Therefore, in the ultimate show of power and mercy, Jesus surrenders to the suffering of death in order that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. On the cross, you see, Jesus disarms and defeats the devil by using the very weapon he thinks he is the master of, death itself. Early church father Augustine of Hippo calls this the devil's mousetrap. The devil exalted when Christ died, but by this very death of Christ, the devil is vanquished as if he had swallowed the bait in the mousetrap. He rejoiced in Christ's death, but what he rejoiced in was then his own undoing. The cross of the Lord was the devil's mousetrap. The bait by which he was caught was the Lord's death. The underlings of hell surely rejoiced when they saw the Son of God expire on the cross, but that rejoicing was merely the prelude to hell's undoing, as the momentary shame of Christ's cross gave way to sin's everlasting ruin. In the Christ of God, the cross becomes the spot where all the minions of death and darkness are put to an open shame, as the defeated God triumphs over them. Jesus embarrasses Satan by subjecting himself to the embarrassment of the cross. It is reminiscent of the scene in 1 Samuel, where the scrappy shepherd boy David wields Goliath's own sword to cut off Goliath's head, the ultimate act of triumph over the enemy. At Golgotha, the true and better David has won the field. This is the scandal of God's gospel, which announces God himself has taken on the body, on a body to become our dying brother. He has familiarized himself with our places of need and grief and suffering and sorrow, and in so doing, he has delivered us out of our need by taking all our own needs as his own. There is no need so great, no hurt so deep, no grief so low that Christ cannot meet. He met them all at the cross. Your mammoth sins have been taken care of in Christ, who in and of himself has paid for every single one by subjecting himself to the suffering of death. This is the gospel's beautiful contradiction. The statement is paradoxical, Linsky concludes. Death freed from death. But it is the fact. One might think that de- Jesus' death wrecked him as death wrecks other men. But the extreme opposite is the fact. It saved us from death. The Son of God took upon himself the nature that belongs to us so that through him we might be reconciled, redeemed, and remade. And ultimately that's what that, cr- that curse that he took that we read in Deuteronomy was about pointing us to Jesus who takes our flesh upon himself so that he can take our curse upon himself and set us free so we can enjoy God's blessing. Well, thank you for listening to this. I hope this has been encouraging to you. Uh, We will continue in the book of Deuteronomy next week. Take care and God bless.